you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning. One day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw 
that it was good. The word of the Lord. All right, well, thanks so much, Scott. Uh, I am, uh, it, it's with uh, trepidation that I begin the book of Genesis. How do you approach a book like this, 50 chapters long? I had this idea uh, last year to preach through the book of Genesis over the course of 2024. We're gonna have some like, sort of like cut in series like Easter and some different stuff in the summer and we're gonna look at some parables later in the year. But over the course of the year in four series, we're gonna work through the book of Genesis. And uh, I have, there's a thing about me that, uh, that my wife could testify to pretty significantly. And that most of my friends could testify to as well. And it, it, it's this thing that I go, I have this great idea, and then I just start going. And then uh, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is a lot more than what I thought it was going to be, this great idea that I had. And a, a good example of that is that when Sarah and I were dating, I had this brilliant idea of a double date with our friends. And I was like, I'll plan everything. And everybody was like, oh, awesome. And so for our double date, I went and bought a geode kit, which cannot, it turns out, be done in a single night. And we never even opened it. Like just, it was like, well, that's just not going to work at all. And whenever I got into Genesis a little bit, I was like, okay, you know, there's really quite a bit here uh, in the book of Genesis. It pretty much has everything you could possibly want I don't know why it hasn't been turned into the most epic mini-series or mega-series of all time because it has all of the big questions of life addressed. It has rape and murder. It has hope and disappointment. It starts off with the creation of all things and the creation of all life, and it ends up with a mummy in a coffin being carried away by others. And it has everything in between and in Genesis chapter 1 just right out of the gate we have this absolutely unbelievably immeasurably enormous thing that we have to address which is the biggest question of all who are we why are we here is there any purpose to this thing that we call life and how are we supposed to discover it and I think in the day that we live in, there's maybe no more prescient question than the question of identity. How are we supposed to locate ourselves in the universe in which we find ourselves? How are we supposed to know who we are and where do we discover meaning? Where do we discover purpose? Does it even exist? Or must we, like Sisyphus, who legendarily cheated the gods, the Greek gods, out of death, and they punished him by saying, you have to push a rock up a hill for all eternity. But the rock would never stay on top of the hill. It always kept falling down. And Sisyphus just decided that even though he was in an endlessly meaningless task, if he said that there was meaning, then it would be meaningful. And in this way, Sisyphus cheated the gods again, which gave rise, by the way, to the philosophy of existentialism and the popular television show Seinfeld a show about nothing is that what life is when we look around at the world in which we find ourselves 
We see people who search for their value and their worth and their purpose in their sexual identity, in their gender identity, in the relationships, romantic and platonic, that they possess, in their accomplishments at work. I'm glad we have a myriad of college students here and, uh, and young adults here. Many, many of my young adult friends and college-age friends erroneously believe that there is a job which will satisfy the longing in their soul for purpose. That they can find just the right thing to do. And that when they discover that one thing, they will be made complete. We're all looking for it. We're all longing to answer it. And we all have this one fundamental problem. Every cosmogony, which is the study of the origins of the universe, every single one has to take a leap of faith because no one can go back before the beginning. Something began at some point in time. Something happened that started all of the other somethings. It's a leap of faith we all have to take. My older brother, Tommy, who's one of my heroes, when he was in elementary school, he encountered this issue, and I think it's the only time in his whole life that he got in trouble at school. He is lovingly referred to by my parents as the perfect child, whereas I am the fun child, meaning I got into a lot of trouble in school. And uh, yes, thank you for that, Dad. And my brother was at this uh, honors program where he got to go to a different school and take these really cool classes. I told my parents, I want to do that. And they said, no, you don't do homework. That gives you homework. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. But my brother is there, and they began talking about the theory of evolution and the Big Bang. And so my brother just began asking the teacher questions. I wasn't there, so I will summarize what I believe the questions were, which was like, well, what happened? Well, there was an explosion. Well, what caused the explosion? Well, there were all these elements. Well, how did those elements come to be? Well, they just were. Well, what made them come together? And eventually the teacher, not having an answer, just kicked him out of class. <laughs> there is actually an Indian fable about the origins of the universe. And it's a story that a father tells his son. His son says, Father, where does the elephant come from? Or where does the tiger come from? Excuse me. And he says, uh, the, the, tiger, the tiger comes from the earth. Well, where, where did the earth come from? What's below the earth? Well, below the earth is a turtle. Well, what's below the turtle? Well, below the turtle is a giraffe. Well, what is below the giraffe? What is it that holds up the world? And he says, well, below that, it's an elephant. Well, what's below the elephant? And the father says, it's elephant all the way down. <laughs> and what Genesis 1-1 does is it names the elephant. What Genesis 1-1 does is it differentiates the Christian faith from all other cosmogonies, from all other beliefs about the origins of the universe. Genesis is written, by the way, not just as a sacred text for us, but as a response and rebuttal to the Mesopotamian texts that talk about the origins of life. Not necessarily primarily, because I'm not the author of it, and so I can't say uh, I'm not God or Moses or whoever else contributed to it. I'm not making a case one way or the other because it's really not the significant part for me in this. But I'm saying I don't know what was in their heart, but I do know that it is absolutely a rebuke and rebuttal of the Mesopotamian texts 
that claimed truth about the origins of the universe. Many people will claim that because the Mesopotamian and ancient Near Eastern texts predate the writing of Genesis, that Genesis, therefore, is borrowed material, that it is taken and co-opted and changed so that Christianity can have some kind of origin story for itself. And my response to that would be, Okay, but if you wanted a more educated response, I would say that the Hebrew language is not first a written language. It's an oral language. And all of us have had occurrences where someone came and told us a thing. Proverbs says that when someone comes and gives an account, they sound right at first until someone else comes and fills in the gaps. I had a pastor who used to tell me that in a crisis, don't ever believe the first report that you hear because it's almost always sensationalized. What we're going to discover in the book of Genesis is that the account of creation and the account of the flood particularly deviate dramatically from the Mesopotamian beliefs and from the ancient Near Eastern beliefs. In those traditions, those heroic, mythic uh, stories, there are a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And those gods and goddesses are fighting, this is the creation uh, epic that is told in these stories, uh, with varying characters playing the roles. But they are fighting against either beasts or other deities that are restraining order from existence. And those Mesopotamian, ancient Near Eastern gods that are benevolent fight and slay the beasts, fight and defeat the other gods, and through the existing material that those other deities or beasts possessed, they created order and the known universe as we experience it. But that's not the story that we're going to discover in our text. We're going to discover in our text that God created what theologians call ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. There was no battle for him. There was instead simply a royal decree, and it happened. It's a great comfort to me as someone who stands up and tries to explain the word of God that I am not the one who imbues it with power. I'm like the bush in Exodus chapter 4 when God meets Moses and there is a flaming fire on this bush, but the bush is not consumed. If you know anything about fire at all, you know it requires a source. It requires some kind of fuel. And when God rests on that bush as a fire and the bush is not consumed, God is trying to teach us something important. And that is that he is altogether self-sustaining, self-sufficient, and unneedy of us or all that he has created. He's altogether other, which means I can stand up and do my very best. And even if my very best is just a dead pile of sticks, God can imbue it with power because his word always has power. There's a real beauty to the language, both of Hebrew and of Greek. And when God speaks, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the speaking of God is always given as a thing that is accomplished, not as a thing that might be. Like 
Later, you might say, hey, maybe I'm, I'm thinking about maybe joining a GC. I'm thinking about maybe going here for school. I'm thinking about maybe majoring in the following things, which is how we speak pretty commonly. But when God speaks all of his recorded words, when God speaks, it actually is that thing, which gives us a tremendous amount of confidence and a tremendous amount of comfort. Every Bible that we possess is a translation. And translators do the best they can to help us have a picture of what the original language actually says. I'm going to be referring in my series through Genesis, in this series through Genesis, to a, a translation by a guy named Robert Alter. And Robert Alter is a guy who took on the challenge of taking this uh, this verbal language of Hebrew and trying to make the written text sound more like the verbal language as it was spoken because there's actually quite a bit of power into it. And so uh, I'll, I'll be posting that. And I'm also, something I'm going to do for this series uh, this week, I'll, I'll create it and make it available in the Church Center app, but I'm going to create a Google uh, Drive folder with a lot of resources that I'm using. So those of you who are interested in deeper study will be able to access that. If you don't have the Church Center app, go ahead and download it or talk to pretty much anybody here and they'll help you get it because that's where I'm going to post the link to that. You can share that link wherever you want to, um, but that's where I'll be posting that link. Don't feel obligated to go there, but if you're looking for the material that I'm studying and that I'm looking through, it'll be available for you there. The leap of faith that we have to make is the same leap of faith that everyone has to make. And that is, how do we go back behind the beginning? And how can we go after the end? Where, where we live is in the muddy middle. That's where we live. We live in the messy middle. Right here in the created world. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And were you to read it as it was spoken, what you would discover is that God is the subject of all that happens. We have a bunch of adjoining clauses that say, and on the first day, and he created, and it was good. In fact, I, I did the, the math, and in Genesis, in the Christian Standard Version, the word and in Genesis chapter 1 occurs something like 45 or 46 times. I have ADD, so it's hard for me to count things that aren't just like really neatly organized, but it's about 45 times. And then I counted it in Hebrew, and it occurs something like 86 times. So it is over and over and over emphasized that God is the one who is doing this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, more about the Mesopotamian gods and goddesses, which were a reflection of humanity. I think it's important for us to understand that this book is for us, but it wasn't written specifically for us. In other words, the author of Genesis wasn't thinking about Raiden Hollis in 2024 living in Edwardsville, Illinois. He, he uh, or she or they or, you know, God is the one who authored it. How about that? God writes it and it's written for his Hebrew people. The Mesopotamian gods and goddesses, and by the way, every other God that has ever been fashioned is a reflection of humanity. The gods and the goddesses that exist outside of Christianity they are a reflection of humanity. Next week, we're going to talk about how humanity is made in the image to be a reflection of God. But what we do is we manufacture our own gods. But the problem is we only know what we only know. 
So everything that we can conceive of only looks sort of like we look, which is why all the gods and goddesses that have ever been created look sort of like Degrassi. Like it's just like some weird high school, college, Melrose Place interaction of all these weird sexual relationships and bitter rivalries and endless frustrations and capricious natures where they're unpredictable in their reactions and limited in the scope of their power. No one has ever been able to conceive of a God that would be pre-existent and altogether different than what we are. The fertility of these gods was particularly important to the worshipers because it was believed that the, the fertility of those gods is what produced the fertility of the earth. And that's why, if you read through the Old Testament, that's why you see these endless fertility idols all over the place to these various gods and goddesses is because the people were longing for that God to produce a multiplying effect on the things that they possessed. By the way, the prosperity gospel is really no gospel at all. It simply takes Christianity and turns it into this same type of process where the only place for multiplication and blessing to happen is if somehow we can create the exact right formula of giving, sacrificing, and serving so that our God will take his power and bounty and multiply it in what we possess. But the Genesis narrative says that God created everything and inside of everything, he put the seed for that thing. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. Meaning that the only thing an apple tree needs to make more apple trees is simply the seed that the apple tree has. Which is why throughout the Old Testament, one of the first acts of righteous people was to tear down those idols. The tearing down of those idols, the destruction of those idols is an act of brutality, but also an act of compelling mercy to say, you don't have to live like that. When you read the creation narrative, you should know, here's how it works. God goes, I'm going to make this thing. I'm going to make it so that it can multiply on its own. And then God steps back and goes, man, I really like that. That's what it means when he says it's good. God is not making a moral pronouncement about apple trees. God is not like, I planted grass and grass is morally good. It makes moral choices and the moral choices that grass makes are always good. No, God shows once again that he's altogether completely unlike you and unlike me. Because God makes something. The first thing he does, he makes it, he steps back, and he says, it is good. Meaning, I really like what I have made. You and I make something, and someone comes over and sees it. And they go, oh, this is really good. And we go, well, here's where I messed up. Here's, here's where it's not good. Here's where it's wrong. Here's where I got outside the lines. Here's where the edges aren't square. Here's where I messed up with the paint. It could be better. It's different than this. We seem somehow unable to do something than to step back and say, 
I have done a good thing and I am pleased with what I have done. God is not like me. And that is very good news for me. But God has made me. And he's happy with what he made. God has made you. And he is happy with what he made. You do not have to come up with some complicated ritual, some series of offerings, or some significant sacrifice that will cause God to finally say of you, now I like you. Now I will bless you. The creation narrative over and over and over and over says God made it, God liked it, and God blessed it. We do not live as beggars. We live as daughters and sons of the Most High God. We do not live as people who must earn his pleasure and who must earn his blessing. We live as people who have been blessed and with whom he is pleased because he made us. The people feared those gods They also tried to control those gods. My own personal fear about my prayer life, and perhaps yours should be as well, is that I'm simply trying to do the same thing. Instead of spending time with a personal being whom I can know and whom I can share myself with. The Hebrew God, Yahweh, is unlike the other ancient gods. He has no rival. There is nothing in the Genesis account where God is like, I got this other guy who's trying to make me not create stuff. I'm just gonna have to whoop him real good before I can create stuff. When the next time we sing, you have no rival, you should bury that truth deep in the bounds and bowels of history. Where there have been millions, billions of people who have believed that their gods have rivals. Our God has no rival. He doesn't need pre-existing material with which to create the universe. He creates out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is pre-existent. He didn't need us. He didn't need earth. It's not like he's like, thank Thank me (laughs) that I created an apple tree because I was getting hungry. After existing in eternity past, I was really feeling kind of famished. His creation contains the capacity to multiply on its own. Everything's created with seed according to its kind. And he freely chose to bless all that he created. He proclaimed it as good. He stood back and said, I really, really like it. First words of the Bible in Genesis 1-1 announce how Israel's God can be known in time and in space. That's how God can be known, in time and in space. He reveals himself in the winds and the wares of human history, which this, by the way, is also conceptually how we locate ourselves. Have you ever been lost before? I have been lost before. I, ha- I live in, even when driving from here back to my house, in a constant fear that my GPS is going to fail. And then I will find myself in a vast, empty nothingness with absolutely no point of reference with which I can orient myself. 
We locate ourselves, we orient ourselves with beginnings and endings in times and in spaces. Where are you now? Right now, I am in the box with the Red Hill Church family with whom I worship Jesus. Have you always been here? No. At another time, I was located in another place. What was it like for you before your birthday? I have no reference for who or what I was before that beginning. What will you be like after your ending? I only have the promise of the Bible which says, we do not know what we will be, but we know that we will be like him. I have no reference for what will take place somewhere else. We see and understand ourselves by our limits and by our bounds, by our beginnings, by our endings, in specific times and specific places. And God graciously condescends to us by announcing his presence in time and space. He did not have to do that. He announces his presence in time and space because how else could we possibly know him? How else could we possibly experience him? How could we meet him? God is not an abstract idea or an impersonal force. God is an eternal being whom you and I can know and experience personally in time and in space. His announcement of creation is an invitation to be known by the created. It's an invitation to know him, to meet him in the only way that you and I could possibly understand him. And that understanding will undoubtedly be limited, which leads us to a thing called mystery. The study of God, theology, all theology that is done right must always end in doxology. If you're going to try to learn who God is, be oriented in this way that says, I'm going to seek after God. And when I come to the end of my ability to understand, I'm going to worship and celebrate that he's altogether different. He's altogether bigger. He's altogether better. It doesn't take long to get there. All you have to do is try to think of nothing. Try to think of what it was like before the beginning. Whatever you believe about the beginning. Try to think about what it was like before the beginning. And you go, I, I got nothing. But even in my nothing, I have something. I have this black, empty void, which is itself actually still a thing. And we say, God is altogether transcendent and beyond that. Without the foundation of a creator, this matters so much. Without the foundation of a creator, we are left to find ourselves in a shapeless void of meaningless matter and random collisions that cause unintended and unpredictable consequences with unknowable ends. Without that, I was, I was running on my treadmill yesterday. And as I was running, there was light coming through the, like, the little windows of the garage, and like, light was kind of like shining in. And, and I saw uh, this tiny little, like I don't know if it was a string, 
like it was like a like a not even a centimeter long that was just floating in the light. And for just a second, I was like, how many things had to be true over the course of human history for me to see that? That moment, when deeply considered, can only lead to worship or despair. This is why, <laughs> this is why the lamenter said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because apart from being grounded with a creator, I'm left in a shapeless void in this limitless, undefined place. How am I supposed to find myself without any point of reference? Without a creator, I become meaningless matter. I looked this up and NASA says we are in fact stardust. Stardust. Without a creator, there's no plan and no purpose to existence. And any attempt to make one is meaningless, trivial, and thoughtless. Without a creator, my whole life is just a series of random collisions with no reason to believe that my pain has any purpose at all. Because the experience of life is an experience of collisions. Even the most wonderful relationships of your life will experience pain. Without a creator, there are unintended and unpredictable consequences. There's no objective reason for morality. Without a creator, there is no objective reason for morality. Without a creator, we are simply left to make it up as we go. And how do we gain agreement in that scenario? And the answer is power. Those with power impose morality. The powerful impose morality and everyone else is then left to either agree or face punishment. But when we're grounded with a creator, we understand who we are, where we are, and what we are. We have, without a creator, unknowable ends. No reason to believe there's anything other than this one life. And if it ends in annihilation, we're left to believe that it is all too brief, all too painful, and all too pointless to even bear. Without a creator, all we have left is atoms. Just matter. And if all there is is matter... And if all we are is stardust, then any belief in any morality is folly. All there is is power and the ability to exert control over others. Because Mars cannot murder Venus and Saturn cannot rape Neptune and the earth cannot love the sun. And any belief that any of those things could be true is irrational and foolish. Having a creator locates me. It grounds me. It gives me meaning and value and purpose. 
It gives me worth. It gives me an identity that is not contingent upon anyone else. That's not contingent upon accomplishments. That's not contingent upon power. I don't want to dive too deeply into the conversation of creation versus evolution because I'm not a scientist and I'm not a philosopher and I'm not really even that great of a theologian. But I want to say that every belief has known and unknown consequences for believing it. And all cosmogony requires a leap of faith. It requires us to look back at the beginning and then to look back before that. And to try to ask, what caused all of this? And when we ask that question, we're forced then to make belief and assumption about what that means for me and what that means for you. When the Genesis account is written, it is written so that you and I might know the truth. So that you and I might know what is real. And some of us will go, yes, but the account in Genesis 1 is different from the account in Genesis 2. And the Bible, there's a lot of stuff that it doesn't talk about. That it'd be really great if it talked about. The Bible... It, 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 you have to make some leaps to say the Bible talks about abortion. It'd be really great if there was a command that said, thou shalt not abort babies. And when we start to travel down that path, we fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of the Bible, which is not to give you a set of facts that must be known. It's not to give you every necessary piece of information it is instead to give you the lenses by which you might see what is true and what is real. That's what the Bible does. The Bible prepares us, no matter where we find ourselves in time and in space, no matter what nationality we find ourselves in, no matter what our socioeconomic condition is, no matter whether we are slave or free, oppressed or oppressor, employee or employer, student, husband, wife, confused, confident, wealthy, impoverished, no matter where we are. The Bible does not give us an endless set of facts. The Bible gives us the ability to be wise and to know what is true. That's the purpose of this. So we don't have to quibble about, well, is the, is the earth only 6,000 years old? I don't know. That's pretty old. Well, what about carbon dating? Well, I don't know if God created the world already as mature. Does that change carbon dating? I don't really know. I also don't really care. You know why? Because I understand this fundamental thing. Jesus has rescued me and I am now prone to believe because of the power and work of his spirit. I am prone to believe what the Bible says. And I take it on faith, just as the evolutionist takes it on faith, just as the atheist takes it on faith. I believe that before there was anything, there was God. And after this is all over, there will be judgment. And how do I know? On faith. And those who would say before whatever started it, there was nothing. And after you die, there is nothing. How do they know? They take it on faith. All of us operate based on faith. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And if you abandon the first verse of the Bible, then you have lost all of the rest of it. If you abandon God as creator, then God is no longer the one who can rightfully redeem all that has been lost. There is a rightful redeemer. There is always, when you read the Old Testament and you see stories like Ruth, there is a rightful redeemer and only the one who has the right to redeem can redeem. In the beginning, God created the heaven, heavens and the earth. And it says in verse 2, now the, you guys are like, there's 25 verses, dude. <laughs> I'm trying to preach the whole Bible and all of philosophy and all of theology, the origins of the universe, and inform you about Mesopotamian and ancient Near Eastern theogonies, which is how did gods come to be, and cosmogonies, which is how did the universe come to be. So I'm really going to skip over most of the rest of the chapter after verse 2 so everybody can take a little bit of a breath. But it says in Genesis 1-2, now the earth was formless and empty. And uh, formless and empty uh, sometimes is translated as a void. The Hebrew words, this is great. The Hebrew words are tohu wabohu. I'm very confident that I am mispronouncing that. I'm also exceedingly confident that that's as good of a guess as any of you are going to be able to make, right? Unless somebody has Hebrew training that extends beyond the one full year that I had, which told me that I do not know Hebrew very well at all. Tohu wabohu. And you're like, cool. What do those actually mean? Well, tohu is a known word. And basically what it means is like desolate desert, sort of what it means, like just this empty wasteland of a place. Great. What about Wabohu? Nobody knows. It's not anywhere else in the Bible or ancient Hebrew literature except for two other times it directly references Genesis 1-2. Jeremiah talks about it. He's like, back when the earth was empty and void, Tohu Wabohu. And Robert Alter basically said, this is probably just like some kind of colloquial phrase, like raining cats and dogs. You know, like it's, it's this, it's this uh, lexical device, this verbal device that's used to sort of like try to convey what's happening in the place. He translates it as welter and waste. Welter and, the earth was welter and waste. The earth was just absolutely formless. It was absolutely empty. It was a wasteland, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Darkness is not vilified in the creation account. It exists. Darkness and light both created things that God says are good. The Spirit of God, it says, was hovering over the surface of the waters. This hovering is rehab. And what it means is fluttering. And the picture is meant to be of uh, a mother bird that is like coming over its nest and the, the, the wings are fluttering. Not in agitation, just sort of like, I'm just gonna be real close while I wait for this next thing to happen. The idea is that the earth is formless and void. In all the other stories about how the world was created, there is a great conflict that takes place. 
a great battle that takes place, but not in our true story of how the world was created, where the spirit of God is pictured like a mother bird fluttering above the nest, just waiting for what's coming next when life is going to spring forth. God's not seen struggling. He's seen superintending and giving care. He's unthreatened. He has no rival. There is no threat to him. And that is really great news for me and for you. And it's not a giant leap for me to say to you that even in the desolate places of your life, you can have confidence that the spirit of God is hovering and protecting so that what's now welter and waste may someday soon be teeming with life and vitality. Because Yahweh created you, loves you, and is pleased with you. He has no rivals. He has no equals. He did not have to fight to establish all of this. He did not have to fight to create order inside of this. His royal decree established all that exists. There's never been a single threat to the rule and reign of God. God has never once been in heaven wringing his hands. What am I gonna do now? So when I say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know about my sin. How could God ever forgive that? Your sin is no threat to the rule and reign of God. Your sin is not so big and so nasty that God is going to go, well, now I've lost total control of creation and there's nothing that I can do to help that person. No past, present, or future, uh, future rival will ever threaten his reign or thwart his plan. The biblical account of creation grounds us in security, in confidence, and in peace. We find ourselves in time. We find ourselves in place. And when we find ourselves in time and place, it's because we've been put in time and place by the God who loves us, which means that in the history of the world, there has never been someone other than you that God wanted living your life, handling your responsibilities and taking on all that you have to take on. Our problem is when we think about our potential, we think about it based on past experience and past performance so we go well I've never encountered something like this I have no past experience or I have always failed at this my past performance the the problem with that is that Galatians 2 20 says I've been crucified with Christ I no longer live but Christ lives in me and the life I live in the body I live by the faith uh, live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me which means that your potential for the life that you're living, if you are a follower of Jesus, your potential is Jesus Christ. That's what your potential is. Because the life that you're living, you're living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. You have a beginning. Everyone who is here has a beginning. And you have an end. This life that you are living will come to an end. Much of my own anxiety, perhaps some of yours as well, is centered around this idea, what if I die? You can relax. You are definitely going to die. And you're like, well, that's not really all that comforting. But the truth is, is that it should be. It should be comforting. You don't have to worry about it. It's definitely going to happen. Well, when is it going to happen? 
that is not your department. You don't have to worry about that if you believe there's a God who made you and loves you and is in control. That doesn't mean I'm never going to feel any anxiety. I'm never going to feel discouraged. I'm never going to feel depressed. I'm never going to feel like I can't do it. When I talk about locating ourselves, what I mean is this. I possess very valid feelings. But my valid feelings, every feeling that you have, it's a valid feeling and it's meant to be a gift from God. That doesn't mean that it perfectly accords with reality. I feel anxious that I might die because something terrible might happen to me that nobody intended. And I can take that very valid feeling and lay it against the reality of my creator who loves me and sustains me and is fluttering over the desolate places of my own life superintending and caring for me and know I'm safe with him. That doesn't mean I am safe from all harm. That means that no permitted harm can get to me. Excuse me, no unpermitted harm can get to me. It's in the glorious middle. It's in the messy, glorious middle that we get to know and experience God. It's you as created being, created on purpose, created just like you are, created with all the stuff that you're like, I wish it was different. I've never felt the song more deeply than I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. <laughs> they lost me on the next verse because I got a girl who looks good and I call her. You know what I'm saying? But I, I mean, all of us have these things about ourselves that we go, I wish it wasn't true about me. I wish that wasn't my story. I wish I didn't have that pain in my past. I wish I wasn't dealing with these present temptations. I wish I looked different. I wish I had more money. I wish I had different interests. I wish I had different impulses. I wish I had different temptations. I wish I had this. I wish I was like that. And we look at others and we go, they don't deal with the thing that I deal with. And all of that is true. And what I want you to know is everything that you are, God made it on purpose. And the way that we locate ourselves is to say, this is who I really am. God, what do you want me to do with that? Well, I am an anxious mess. I got to tell you, one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed, sorry, Chesney, was in Guatemala, in Guatemala, when Chesney got up and shared her own testimony about anxiety, and there was a young lady who was there, and she, she stood up and she spoke in Spanish, and she spoke real fast, and thankfully we had a translator, because I, like, I know how to ask for the bathroom and a few other things, but it's not great, you know? And the, and the translator is, is, is translating, and, and she says, what Cindy 3, the third Cindy of the group, is saying is, that the God who helped you will help me. The God who rescued you will rescue me. The God who strengthened you will strengthen me. He hasn't done that for me yet. But because he's done it for you, I know that he will do it for me. What if the purpose of all of it was to take all of it, all of it that we are, and to say, I'm gonna lay it before you, my creator, so that you can tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. How do I take all that I am and use it for your glory? Context. Creation is the context where you get to know and experience Yahweh.
His role as creator establishes him not just as the rightful ruler, but also as the rightful redeemer. Which means if you're in the messy middle, you're right in the place where God very first showed up, right in the messy middle. Right, right in the welter and waste, right there in the tohu wabohu, right there in the mess of life, that's where God will meet you. That's where God always meets us. It's Dallas Willard who said, God has never blessed anyone except for exactly where they are. And so I wanna invite you this morning to locate yourself in the presence of the one who made you. To locate yourself. Who actually am I? And what do you want me to do with this thing that you've given me that's called life? Because he is the single great reference point. He is the single orienting principle and organizing principle of the whole universe. He's reliable, he's faithful, he's true, and he's present. He's present right here and right now. Exactly where you are is exactly where God wants to meet you. Would you please, with me, would you please bow your heads? As I talk, I, did, I want you to consider where you are. You can feel free to enter into a conversation with Yahweh, with God, your creator. You can feel free to listen to me and consider how God might be leading you in these moments. Part of our normal response is the taking of the Lord's Supper. And it is critical for you to know that as we walk through the story of Genesis and as you travel through the history of the Old Testament, from expulsion in the Garden of Eden, from the pronouncement of the curse, history was in search of the rightful redeemer of humanity. Who would make it right? And when you come to the table to take the Lord's Supper during these response moments, you are making a declaration of your faith that Jesus is the rightful redeemer of your life. Jesus is the rightful redeemer of all humanity and Jesus is the rightful redeemer of all creation. That is not an insignificant thing. You're proclaiming his death, not just that he died, but that that death serves an incredible purpose. And that that death was the only thing that could be done. We also give, we encourage you to give Churches talk too much about money or don't talk enough about money. I want to remind you that the Mesopotamian belief was that you could give something and thereby cause God to favor you. But that is not the Christian perspective of giving. The Christian perspective of giving is like what Paul told the Corinthians about the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians. He said, they gave not as we expected they gave first themselves to God and then by his will to us. And then he challenged the Corinthians. 
He said, you have begun this grace that's called giving, and I want you to excel at it. We should excel at giving, not because we're trying to earn God's favor, but because we are trying to say everything that we possess is yours, and we want to see your kingdom come, and we want to see your will be done. And we do not want to be like the culture around us where the clutches of consumerism and materialism become the ruling and prevailing God of our lives. We give because it's an act of grace to give, not an act of earning. And if you are here this morning and you have located yourself as not being close to God, do something about it. Because he is present here now. In the book of Acts, when the gospel is preached with boldness, the response comes back, what are we supposed to do? We've been cut to the heart with conviction. What are we supposed to do? And the answer comes, repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's funny because in Genesis, what we see is we see sin and then we see grace and then we see blessing over and over and over again. And if you confess your sins, the Bible says that God is faithful and he's just and he will forgive you of all sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and you can do that this morning. Locate yourself in the presence of your creator and just do whatever he tells you to do. Just obey him. Listen carefully to him. Trust him. I'm gonna pray, and then when you're ready, you can respond as the Lord leads. God, thank you for these moments together, and thank you for your word, and I pray that you take my spoken words, and though you don't need them in order to set fire to our hearts, I pray that you would fill them and even when the speaking is done, I pray that the burning would continue. That we might be able to point not to a really incredible bush, but to a really incredible God. Take what I am, take what I have, and use it for your glory. Use it for our good. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. When you're ready, you can come to the table and I'll be available to talk or pray with anyone who would like to.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.